and welcome to Written in Uncertainty, an Elder Scrolls podcast sat firmly in the grey maybe of Tamriel. My name is Aramithius, and this time we've got a compilation episode for you again, just in the same way that I compiled everything from the Truth and Sequence. This episode is a compilation of all the different parts of the monomyth. So, this isn't any new content if you've been subscribing to me for a while. I just thought this would be a good place to put all of the different parts of the monomyth in one place so you can just listen to it all in one go. There are some slight differences in the sound here from the different sections as I've recorded at different times and I think I went through a mic transition while I was recording this. So each of the different sections will have some level of difference between them. So I hope that's not too much of a problem for you guys and just enjoy. Thank you. We start off with an introduction that looks at some of the more common themes within the whole of the monomyth text and the very similarities and potential differences that there are between some of the cultures, with the start in particular looking at the space god and the time god and what their inclusion in everything means across the whole of the Tamrielic pantheons. Now this text is kind of foundational to a lot of people's understandings of the Elder Scrolls lore. It lays out an awful lot of the themes and repeating motifs that are part of the broader lore in quite simple terms and so as a result it's kind of foundational, at least for me, in understanding how the world of the Elder Scrolls fits together. It was originally submitted to the Essential Site by Michael Kirkbride before the release of Morrowind. There's quite a few texts that were submitted in this way as far as I understand it. And it wasn't all in the one whole inclusive monomyth text that you see in the main games. It was in chunks and the Elder Scrolls Online has resurrected some of that earlier presentation to a degree. So what I'm going to be doing in looking at this text to save you from listening to me rambling on at great length and without having time to digest, I'm going to be breaking it down into different sections. We're going to have the preface this week and then look at all the different myths in each of the weeks that follow on until we've finished them all. So, with that basis, let's kick off. It starts with a quote, which is this. In Mundus, conflict and disparity are what bring change, and change is the most sacred of the eleven forces. Change is the force without focus or origin. And that's attributed to Oengithnir, Taharide, the Order of Sish. Now, that whole quote is from another book. It's from a book called The Old Ways, which is describing the Sijic perspective on the way the world works and how it one should conduct oneself within the world, which is a little appropriate because you see later on, um, uh, I think there are two myths 
that are attributable to the Sijic, um to the Sijic order as being presented to various people by the Sijics. At least one is that way. We'll get to that and I can confirm when we get there. But that's worth bearing in mind at this point as well. And the highlighting of change as an interesting one because the theme for most of this preface is that there's change that kind of echoes throughout Mundus and the same patterns repeat over and over. Um, but there's that constant change that goes on. And just to also to highlight before we get started in the main text, the 11 forces. We don't ever actually know what all of those 11 forces are. Change is the only one that's ever named for us within the series. But I'm going to go a little bit out on a limb and say that I assume that there'll be things like time and space, maybe. Or at least maybe not space, because space isn't a force. But if you look at time and the related concepts like that, it feels like it possibly fits into how the Sijics are looking at the Eleven Forces. But anyway, back to the text. Simply put, the schism in the human Old Murray worldview is the mortal's relationship to the divine. Humans take the humble path that they were created by the immortal forces, while the Oldma claimed descent from them. Now this quote is a little broad in how it looks at things. The use of the word Old Mary is a blanket term to suggest all elven races, all Murrish races, although the only place you'll really see this sort of attitude at its most explicit is with the Altma. There's not that much in the way of suggestions in other Moorish cultures apart from potentially the Bosma if you believe the varieties of faith that explicitly state descent from the divine and there's maybe one text uh, that's a comment from Michael Kirkbride in a forum somewhere that says that the Dunmer view the Daedra in the same way as other Mer view the Aedra but that's still not quite as explicit in how they relate to them in quite a few ways. And you've also got the notion that humans, that men, were created by the immortal forces. But again, that's hard to pin down and find an explicit expression of within other texts. And that's also different from how we see it in the annotated Anuad, which we looked at last week. That text suggests that the both men and Myrrh are descended from the Elnafay, the wandering Elnafay and the old Elnafay, without much in the way of a suggestion of either being created. And that perspective does alter how the old Myrrh think about their relationship to the divine and where they came from, what they deserve in a way, if an old Mer becomes a god, if a Mer becomes a god, that's kind of expected, that's just them returning to what they were before. But if a man becomes a god, then that's something that shouldn't happen. That's a created being reaching up to be a creator, that's not allowed. Which is also why you see the Thalma taking such umbrage about Talos. It's a man claiming that they became a god, and with that kind of Moorish worldview of we're descended, you're not, so you shouldn't have anything to do with the gods, 
explains that whole attitude. All Tamrilic religions begin the same. Man or Mer, things begin with the dualism of Anu and his other. These twin forces go by many names. Anu Padme, Anuiel Sithis, Akel, Satak Akel, is, is not. Anuiel is the everlasting ineffable light. Sithis is the corrupting inexpressible action. In the middle is the grey maybe, Nern in the Elnafex. I do find it a little weird that Padme isn't mentioned explicitly at the start, and you see later on that we get more echoes of Anu's double being a little pushed to the side, um, a little ignored. You look at the book Sithis, and it suggests that Sithis is part of that primal pair and not Padme. And you've also got one or two sources like the Words in Sequence and the 36 Lessons that suggest that the Anu-Padme duality doesn't exist at all, which this text very, very lightly hints at by only really naming Anu. And it also seems to suggest that Anuiel Sithis and Akel and Satak Akel, the other pairings, are all kind of on a level with Anu Padme, which most texts won't tell you, which they'll generally say that Anuiel and Sithis is the next level down in the creational gradients, that Anuiel is the soul of Anu, Sithis is the soul of Padme, and they are lower down than the beings that originally created them, which you'll see in some of the myths as we move through the monomyth. In most cultures, Anuiel is honoured for his part in the interplay that creates the world, but Sithis is held in higher esteem because he's the one that causes the reaction. Sithis is thus the original creator, an entity who intrinsically causes change without design. Even the Hist acknowledge this being. And remember that the text at the start flagged change as a fundamental force in the universe and as something that is the most sacred of the, the fundamental forces here. So you've got that reiteration that Sithis is therefore more sacred than Anuiel, at least as far as the Sijiks are concerned, maybe. Although it kind of should be the other way around as far as I'm concerned. There's a text that suggests that the idea of Anu creating Anuiel, of subgradiating and creating his own soul to look at. It's the idea that Anu should not be able to do anything. If Anu is stasis, as is hinted at in this and various other texts, then it shouldn't be able to do anything. And so Sij, as a word that's a little difficult to get your head around, you don't know entirely how to spell it. I mean, how many J's are there in there? And that kind of incomprehensibility is core to the concept that Anu is the one making an action which is in response to Sithis's original action. Sithis is the start of everything. There are various texts that call him the start of all true houses because it brings about that original change, that original drive for difference and distinction and so on. And on the final note, even the Hist acknowledge this being. The, that goes beyond 
acknowledgement in a few ways. It goes directly to worship if you look at the Argonian cultures. And that is kind of interesting because they potentially have a similar outlook to the Sijiks maybe if we're taking the Hist as worshipping change, thinking change as a good thing, which I think is definitely the case if you look at some of the Argonian creation myths, then it's very, very similar to the way the Sijiks function, which is kind of curious. Anuiel is also perceived of as order, opposed to the Sithis chaos. Perhaps it is easier for mortals to envision change than perfect stasis, for often Anuiel is relegated to the mythic background of Sithis's fancies. In Yokudan folk tales, which are among the most vivid in the world, Satak is only referred to a handful of times as the Hum. He is a force so prevalent as to not really be there at all. And if it is true that he's present in the Yokudan folk tales, he's not really there to the same degree as we would expect this to be in there. And he's certainly not called the Hum in the Yokudan creation myth which we'll get to as part of this series. But there is a kind of a fundamental truth there. Re- leaning on the Yokudan folktale again, you've got Satak being everything and having to have nothing in order to even start to think and even be, is one of the quotes, that in order for things to exist at all, there needs to be something other than this, this constant noise, if you want to go with the hum metaphor, that is Satak. This one being that is everything needs space in order to make something different from itself. In any case, from these two beings spring the Etada, or original spirits. To humans, these Etada are the gods and demons. To the Aldma, the Aedra Daedra, or the ancestors. All of the Tamrielic pantheons fill their rosters from these Etada, though divine membership often differs from culture to culture. Like Anu and Padme, though, every one of these pantheons contains the archetypes of the dragon god and the missing god. Now, there's a fair amount to unpack here, so I may well wind up quoting stuff back at you from what we've just gone through, but I wanted to get the whole paragraph out of the way first. First of all, all of the Tamrielic pantheons fill their rosters from these Etada. From that description, it sounds like the Tamrielic pantheons are picking specific Etada to worship rather than necessarily going with what the most obvious choices are. And you can see that in the way that the Ultima pantheon revere quite a few of their hero ancestors as gods in the way that men don't really. You've got a few mentions of culture heroes within Manish faiths, but only really Talos is the kind of the big equivalent of an Etada. The dragon god and the missing god. The dragon god is always related to time and is universally revered as the first god. He is often called Akatosh, whose perch from eternity allowed the day. He is the central god of the Cyrodiilic Empire. I kind of take issue with the notion of him necessarily being the first god, because if you look at the Daedra Nocturnal, she's referred to as the Ur-Dra, not the Ur-Daedra, 
but the er dra. The use of the prefix er, even in the way language works here, it suggests something primal, something proto, and suggests first in several ways, which means that Nocturnal potentially has a claim to also be the first god in some way, although it's also possible that as Akatosh is time, you kind of need a time god in order to have a first of anything, otherwise everything happens at once uh, without any real causality or structure or order. You've also got the quote here, whose perch from eternity allowed the day. That is quoted in Michael Kirkbride's unlicensed text, Et Arda, Et Adra, Eat the Dreamer, in a way of thinking about what Akka, as is referred to there, is. One of the steps that potentially gets missed out within these texts in the way that this text will be looking at the different pantheons, but you will hear the fandom discuss, is the idea of Akka as a unified time god that then produced Akatosh, Alduin, Oriel, all that lot. And the use of the whose perch from eternity allowed the day reminded me that there is a text out there that does do that in some ways. And you've also got the Song of Pelinol, who also refers to O Akka, for our shared madness, we do this rather than Akatosh as such. We've also got the claim that he was the central god of the Cyrodiilic Empire. That is definitely true, but it's also worth noting at this point that he was originally a god of the Myrrh, that in forming the Cyrodiilic Empire, once her rebellion was over, Alicia co-opted Akatosh as the god that most of her subjects already worshipped because they worshipped a Moorish pantheon. There are some changes down the line that change Akatosh from a primarily Moorish god to a primarily Manish god, but that's a subject for another day. The missing god is always related to the mortal plane and is a key figure in the human Old Murray Schism. The missing refers to either his palpable absence from the Pantheon, another mental distress that's interpreted in a variety of ways, or the removal of his divine spark by the other immortals. He's often called Lorcan, and his epitaphs are many, equally damnable and devout. The difference between the human and Old Murray outlooks here is whether or not Lorcan did the right thing. Men tend to think that Lorcan did the right thing because creation is good. And the old Murray view in this is that creation is a bad thing because it dragged them down from their divinity into mortality, which is a bad thing as far as the Altmer are concerned, which is also a very Gnostic view. If you want to check out how that works, I do some wiki searching on Gnosticism and how the different types of God, or at least the different types of spirit, all emanated from a central point and 
subgradiated to use a word that I'm used to into these the various different beings like the creator of the world and the angelic beings and so on and so forth. That's very much where the inspiration for this sort of stuff comes from if you're looking for a real world link and the idea of souls birthing souls, which we'll get to later, is very, very Gnostic. We also see um, Lorcan reinterpreted in Redguard myth as sep, as a hunger, as an absence, something that needs to be filled, which is another way of looking at his missing status here. Note that Tamriel and the mortal plane do not exist yet. The Grey Maybe is still the playground of the original spirits. Some are more bound to Anu's light, others to the unknowable void. Their constant flux and interplay increases their number, and their personalities take long to congeal. When Akatosh forms, time begins, and it becomes easier for some spirits to realise themselves as beings with a past and a future. The strongest of the recognisable spirits crystallise. Mafala, Arke, Ifri, Magnus, Ruptgata, etc, etc. Others remain as concepts, ideas or emotions. One of the strongest of these, a barely formed urge that the others call Lorcan, details a plan to create Mundus, the mortal plane. Now, some being bound to Anu's light and others to the unknowable void is another big absence of Padme, in my opinion here. We've got Anu and we've got the other, which is a little odd because you've got some very, very definite perspectives coming out here when you hear people talking about the other gods that emerge later on in the in this paragraph. They've got a very, very definite place in how they function, and so Anu not having an other is quite conspicuous. It's also a little interesting that, Rupt, um, that Rupkata is mentioned here amongst the slightly lesser ones, if you like, because he, if anyone does, has the role of Akatosh and the kind of overseer of creation and how it works within the Redguard pantheon. So it's possible that what this text is doing is trying to be syncretic about it. It's trying to merge everyone together into one set of ultra pantheons, if you like. Humans with the exception of the Red Guards, see this act as a divine mercy, an enlightenment whereby lesser creatures can reach immortality. Oldma, with the exception of the Dark Elves, see this act as a cruel deception, a trick that sundered their connection to the spirit plane. And there's your reason for the split. That men are grateful to at least be given the chance to potentially attain divinity, although that's not something you'll see advertised particularly in Manish Faiths, that you'll see people say that it's good that Talos managed it, it's good that Arkane managed it, maybe, if you follow that line of thought for his origins, but there aren't that many other examples of people that attained divinity. There's things that are worshipped as gods, but not but their ascension isn't made so much of a big deal out of. You've got Raman as the spirit of human endeavour um, in the writers of faith, if I remember correctly, or something along those lines. Um, and you've also got Morehouse, who, is, who was already some form of Arda. 
but you've not got that many others who have ascended into godhood. The Dark Elves are the big exception here as well. The Dunma, who worshipped the tribunal, the three living gods, for a good chunk of their history. Their way of looking at Mundus in general isn't really elucidated anywhere else, so I'll go into it a bit here. There are various texts that point to Boethia explaining to the Kaima that their place in Somerset wasn't how it was meant to be, that it was easy living, that it was too simple, that it was making them weak. And so they set out in order to make life tough for themselves, in order to uh, make themselves into something better. Mundus for the Dunmer is a place of challenge. It's not a good place that's a nice place to be, but it is of necessity somewhere that is harsh and cruel and will cut you into better shapes. It will make the Dunmer into something that is worth respect, that is worth being something else, maybe that is worth transcendence, if you like, but that's not a realm that's all sunshine and rainbows. It's harsh and it's cruel, but it does colour their understanding of the mortal plane. It means that they see the mortal plane as a good thing because it gives them a place to test themselves. It is a place of necessary trial, which kind of links up with the Irenaean theodicy, if I can delve back into real-world religion for a second here. Irenaeus was an early church thinker who said that people didn't actually have souls when they were born, that it was through the act of existing in the world and being in the world and living in the world that generated your soul. And through that act of being in the world, you had a soul and therefore you lived forever. It's not especially orthodox in terms of Christian theology, but it's very similar to how the Dunmer seem to see Mundus here. So it's an interesting point of comparison. Lorcan, the creator, trickster, tester deity in, is in every Tamrielic mythic tradition. His most popular name is the Old Murray Lorcan or Doomdrum. He convinced or contrived the original spirits to bring about the creation of the mortal plane, upsetting the status quo much like his father Padme had introduced instability into the universe in the beginning place. After the world is materialised, Lorcan is separated from his divine centre, sometimes involuntarily, and wanders the creation of the Etada. Interpretations of these events differ wildly by culture. Now, Lorcan being present in every Tamrielic mythic tradition is in some ways a lie. I mean, you heard the stuff from the previous passage that's saying that he's a palpable absence in some pantheons. So he's obviously not there all the time. And if you listen to the second episode of the Selective's Lorecast, they have Michael Kirkbride on and he explicitly says that he created Lorcan during Morrowind's development in order to force a theological difference into the world, in order to force a different perspective on how mortals relate to the divine. Lorcan is, in the real world, the reason for this mannish-murrish divide and difference of opinion on how the world is meant to be. And I'd also like to point out here the use of Doom Drum. 
you've got in some forum posts that Kirkbride made the suggestion that Tamriel is a song. And the suggestion of Doom Drum here means that Lorcan isn't part of the song, he's the thing that sets the beat, which means that he has quite a different role in how Tamriel functions. Which is also kind of interesting because if you look at some other texts, they refer to the Doom Drum uh, from a Moorish perspective that the Doom Drum is a bad thing, but it, it gives him a very central role. I mean, the drum sets the beat for an entire song and the other instruments often can't function without it, particularly if you don't have a conductor, but that's getting nitpicky. But that a culture which hates Lorcan that thinks he did a bad thing would assign him such a pivotal role, an important role in the unfolding here, is a little telling, I think. The convinced or contrived difference is another Manish-Murish difference here. You've got the Manish races generally saying that Lorcan persuaded the original spirits to make Mundus with him, which is a little less deceptive than contrived or lied or deceived, which is the Murish view. There is a potentially a way of reconciling this that I've heard explained, that the beings were potentially willing at the start to go along with it, but were then unsatisfied by the end result and were tricked in the sense of this isn't what we signed up for. They did sign on to create Mundus, but they didn't sign up for what it would mean for them in its entirety. There are some spirits that escaped during the process and became the Magna Gay, but those that stayed on potentially also, or at least couldn't leave, potentially could consider themselves tricked after the event, buyer's remorse if you like. And the final point I'd like to look at here is that Lorcan is separated from his divine centre, sometimes involuntarily. Now, most of the narratives that we have around the creation myth is that Lorcan had his heart torn out as punishment for creating the mortal plane, that it was entirely involuntary. But um, I just like to think for a second about what it would mean if his heart was torn out voluntarily. The effect of the heart landing on Mundus and imbuing it with a reasonable amount of selfishness, to quote some of the myths that we'll be talking about later, speaks to something that Lorcan wanted to be put into the world if it was him voluntarily having his heart torn out, which means that Lorcan possibly understood that mortality had to happen, that mortality and his own death, so to speak, or at least his own diminishment and scattering into however many different pieces, had to be part of the creation of Mundus. And that mortality is a necessary facet of this is really quite interesting because you get an awful lot of overtones of self-sacrifice and missing out on something. If you look at the unlicensed text Vex teaching, that ends with the pointers that 
Lorcan intentionally failed at Chim so that we might know how not to, or words to that effect, that Lorcan is sacrificing himself and his own prospects, his own being, in order to allow the ones that will come after to be something more. And with the introduction out of the way, we now look at the first of the tales, which is the tale told by the Sijiks, the myth of Arabis. I will begin first of all though, by correcting something that I managed to entirely miss out of last episode's recording, that the title of the book overall, The Monomyth, is a reference to a work by Joseph Campbell. He wrote a book called The Hero with a Thousand Faces, in I think it was the 30s or so and it was basically about how lots of mythic narratives all follow the same pattern about how a hero receives a call to action who then resists the call then leaves and goes on an adventure goes on various trials meets various characters that help him save it and then he returns changed to his original place having defeated his main opponent that's not quite the monomyth that this text is talking about, but it is relevant because what Campbell was trying to do was synthesize various myth patterns into one and think about how lots of mythic tales from lots of different traditions do actually have the same structure because of this underlying archetype. What the monomyth, the religious text in the Elder Scrolls is trying to do is something very similar with how it looks at the gods. It's trying to reconcile how all the different events and the various pantheons fit together and essentially tell the same story from different angles. And this particular one, the myth of the Arabis, is trying to do that to an even greater degree, which is an interesting thing to look at because it, to me, it almost winds up being a mush of not very much at all. So if we kick off, we've got this interesting little subtitle and preface to it. Subtitled The Sijic Compensation, Mythic Arabis was an attempt by Artaeum apologists to explain the basics of Old Murray religion to Uriel V in the early, glorious part of his reign. It quietly avoided any blame or bias against the Lokan concept, which was still held in esteem by the Cyrodiils as Shazar, the missing sibling of the Divines. Despite this, the Sajiki still give a nice summary of the Elder View, and it will serve our purpose here. This version comes from the archives of the Imperial Seminary from the handwritten notes of an unknown scribe. So with that context in mind, it's worth bearing in mind that the myth we're about to hear is something that is presented by elves to start off with, our apologists, the early Sajiks, who already diverge from the broad line, broadly Old Merry view and have a difference in the, a view in theology about that. So you're getting them trying to talk about something they don't entirely agree on to someone else and trying to make it sound palatable to this all-powerful figure. So they're likely to spin it and make it sound quite 
reasonable. Uh, it already says that it, it quietly avoids any blame on the Locarno concept, and you'll see how, as we go through it, they kind of muddy the waters and say, well, it could be this, it could be that, it could be the other. And then in addition to that, we've then got it being written down by someone whose name we don't even know and it being filed away somewhere. So this is not the myth as it is in its natural state, but that's something to be very aware of. And it's also something that's trying to hedge. We talked about how the monomyth text as a whole, when it's talking about the dragon god and the time god, is almost aiming at a syncretic view of the pantheons. This text is doing that on steroids. It's trying to make everything seem different to the established view, but also not offensive to the established view, which means that it goes gets very broad outlines done and right, but the details are a little eh, basically. Mythic Arabis exists and has existed from time without measure as a fanciful, unnatural realm. My question with this is why it's an unnatural realm. It's talking about the whole of existence. How is the whole of existence unnatural? There was some talk by Michael Kirkbride when he's talked about what Nern is. The word posse points and imposse points comes up. And there's some things that get highlighted in the Dwemeri view about how the world is impossible and doesn't really make a lot of sense. I think that's what's being talked about here, but I'm not totally sure. It feels like it's trying to say that the world as it is should have been something else, but we don't really know what from this text. Arabis is used to connote the imperceptible penumbra, the grey centre between the is-is-not of Anu and Padme. It contains the multitude realms of Aetherius and Oblivion, as well as other, less structured forms. So we've also got, in addition to thinking about this is an unnatural place, uh, which isn't how we understand things, we've got the Arabis as the centre, as the maybe. That's referring to the grey maybe term that is used in quite a few places. But it also makes clear that the maybe is not the is, is not of Anu Padme. So Anu and Padme, as distinct from their interplay, is not what they're talking about here. You've got the two primal forces and only the area where they mix is the Arabis. The other thing that interests me here is the talk of other less structured forms. We've got the idea of Aetherius and Oblivion as well established, where the gods and demons live. If you go with the imperial belief, the gods rule in Aetherius and the demons of Oblivion are the Daedra. But that's not even the right picture there. But what are the other forms here? We don't really get a lot of information from this text, uh, but the closest thing we can possibly talk about from other texts is the talk of the void which is where Padme and potentially Sithis are, if you look at a few other texts. But they're not really entities, if you like, in the traditional sense of it. And there's certainly not much in the way of structure in those places. The Void is portrayed as a place of nothingness, and Sithis is a being of entropy rather than structure. So, I don't know. 
Um, that's the only possibility that I can see at this point. The magical beings of mythic Arabis live for a long time and have complex narrative lives, creating the patterns of myth. These are the Etada, basically. Uh, these are the spirits that, in other tales, persist between cycles of the world and will go on to form the gods and demons of the various pantheons. And they have complex narrative lives outside of the world. So in addition to the time and cycles of the world, we've also got a second order of narrative going on here, that the time that is flowing on in between worlds is still a continuous narrative. There's a few texts out there that will make nods to this. Not many of them that you'll find within the games, quite a bit of them in the stuff that gets put out for the Argonian mythologies in the Elder Scrolls Online. The, um, the Children of the Root talks about cycles, which I think is also to do with different cycles of the world and different calpers and the progression that goes on beyond that. But you can check out my video on that that I've already done to check out my views on that one. And we've also got the patterns of myth going on here. They're, the patterns of myth are not identified with the magical beings of the mythic Arabis, which are the spirits, the gods and demons. The patterns of myth seem to exist beyond those spirits. So my question is, are the gods reacting to a more primal pattern? Are they performing roles which have already been pre-assigned to them through, through the nature of the Arabis itself, rather than being their own beings, if you like. This ties in a bit with Jungian psychology, the idea that there are certain archetypes in the human subconscious that people will try to play out. And so my question is, if we've got the patterns of myth existing before the magical beings, then are the magical beings, are the Etada, playing out patterns that exist before them, which ultimately makes the whole idea of repeating patterns and calpers and so on much more concrete because you've already got these underlying patterns. These are spirits made from bits of the immortal polarity. The first of these was Akatosh the Time Dragon, whose formation made it easier for other spirits to structure themselves. Gods and demons form and reform and procreate. And so we have Akatosh landing and creating time and making everything a nice structured narrative. It kind of says that the magical beings were created before that point, if there is a before, but it's a little difficult to get away from the notion of time in how we think about things. It almost makes me think that, again, thinking back to the Anuad, that there's a time in at the Anu Padme level, not necessarily just starting with Akatosh, which is kind of a quasi-Kantian way of looking at things. Immanuel Kant um, posited the idea that time was transcendental, that time was totally independent of everything else, that we couldn't imagine anything, you couldn't conceive of anything without time. You also couldn't conceive of anything without space, but time's the focus here. But the idea that you couldn't think of anything without there being a flow of time, 
meant that time was entirely separate from your perceptions of anything. And I'm just wondering whether this way of thinking about the Arabis is putting that sort of idea across that not necessarily time, but change is kind of key here, that because it's a Sijic point of view and the Sijics like change and think it's a prime mover of a thing, um, that change is something that is always there, is always a constant, that change is transcendental in the way that Kant thought space and time were. Finally, the magical beings of mythic Arabis told the ultimate story, that of their own death. For some, this was an artistic transfiguration into the concrete, non-magical substance of the world. For others, this was a war in which all were slain, their bodies becoming the substance of the world. For yet others, this was a romantic marriage and parenthood, with the parent spirits naturally having to die and give way to the succeeding mortal races. And the beings of the mythic Arabis telling their ultimate story, telling about their own death, is where we get hints of Tolkien in this. The way that Tolkien frames his legendarium is in terms of a song, and that the Ainur, before creation starts in Tolkien's narrative, have already sung out the patterns of everything. So, is this narrative saying that the magical beings are telling their own story of their own death, of the fate of the world, before the world even begins? I'm not really sure. It doesn't have a concrete point where it says, this is where the world starts. Apart from that, so there's part of me thinking it's just wordy metaphor, but it did make my ears prick up slightly. The rest of the passage is where we start to get into the syncretism of this book. The, it kind of fudges the whole notion of creation. It gives you a load of different perspectives. It's a war, it's people becoming parents, and it becoming a natural process, and then you've got an artistic transfiguration as well. They completely gloss over any kind of normative question over what the world is. It's not a good thing, it's not a bad thing, it just happens, and here's several ways in which it could happen. I haven't seen the marriage metaphor anywhere else, though, I must admit, that it's the idea of marriage and parenthood being a natural thing and the natural pattern of the world isn't something we see anywhere else, which I thought was a little curious. The agent of the communal decision was Lorcan, who most early myths vilify as a trickster and a deceiver. More sympathetic versions of this story point out Lorcan as being the reason the mortal plane exists at all. And this is a summary of some of the stuff that came up in the previous section of the book. Um, that Lorcan is either tricking or persuading the Etada to create the mortal plane. Uh, the interesting thing for me is that it says most early myths vilify Lorcan as a trickster and a deceiver. But if you think back, the most of early myths that we have are from elves. We have records of the Dwemer, we have records from people leaving Somerset and scouting out Tamriel before there's written record 
of life on Tamriel at all. So the early myths vilifying Lorcan as a trickster and a deceiver is a way of saying most of the early myths are elvish, in my opinion. The magical beings create the races of the mortal Arabis in their own image, either consciously as artists and craftsmen, or as the fecund rotting matter out of which mortals sprung forth, or in a variety of other analogical senses. And I think, again, we have a lot of psychic diplomacy going on here. We've got the mortal races emerging in a way that doesn't really matter. It could be anything, really. I mean, make up your own story. I don't mind. That's the sense I get from that passage. It almost feels irresponsible. <laughs> um, it's not, well, we don't really know what happened. It could be this, it could be this, it could be this. Um, it's just fudging it to the point of where it's not relevant. The key thing for me in this one is that there's no note of dissent here. It's all being created. The magical beings created the mortal um, races in their own image, which is pretty biblical in its language. Um, and it doesn't talk about them being descended. It kind of glosses over the passage above that talks about marriage and parenthood and all that, which I do find slightly interesting, particularly as this is a Sijic text, because we have the book The Old Ways talking about the Sijic worldview as presenting the spirits of this world as the spirits of everyone's ancestors. And that's not an option here, which is kind of curious, and especially if this is a Sijic trying to present an old Mary perspective. The idea that they're not descended is a huge oversight if you're trying to look at this as a Moorish particular a Moorish narrative. The magical beings then, having died, became the Etada. The Etada are the things perceived and revered by the mortals as gods, spirits, or geniuses of Arabis. Through their deaths, these magical beings separated themselves in nature from the other magical beings of the unnatural realms. So this is the pattern of creation and the telling of the Etada becoming the spirits of the natural world. One of the things that I do find a little curious is that this points out that the spirits aren't Etada until after they've died. You don't have the Etada being a class that encompasses Aedra, Daedra and Magna Gay like most myths seem to present. You just have the Etada being the ones that are involved in the creation of Munda. So in this text, it's treating the Etada and the Aedra as the same thing, which is a little interesting. And we also have the note here of the geniuses of Arabis. That isn't a way you describe a god generally. It's a way you talk about an exceptional being of any stripe, uh, particularly of mortals. And so is this text hinting that you can potentially become an Etada by being really good at what you do as reaching some kind of apotheosis? I don't honestly know, although thinking about the other texts around this time, we have the notion of things like Chesarines and Zurin Arctus comes up as an avatar of Magnus in, I think, Tamrielic lore. 
I'll be linking that in the comments and in the text of this video. But those differences aside, I think that might be what that's referring to. Um, and it also hints at the idea that mortals can become gods, which again is a difference from the standard old Murray view of things that all beings whatsoever can become gods. It is totally in line with the Sijic view that the Aedra and the Daedra are beings that achieved great things and then went on to be better things in the spirit plane. And this is also where we have the first divide between the mortal and the immortal at this point, the magical beings separating themselves in nature from the other magical beings. It's the Aedra deliberately cutting part of themselves off to become mortal, to be part of the mortal world. The Daedra were created at this time also, being spirits and gods more attuned to oblivion or that realm closer to the void of Padme. This act is the dawn of the mythic, merithic era. It has been perceived by the earliest mortals in many different ways, either as a joyous second creation or, especially by the elves, as a painful fracturing from the divine. The originator of this event is always Lokan. And so we end with another piece of trying to mash everything together and say that it doesn't really matter. It's another attempt to say that, well, it could be this way or it could be the other way, which, I don't know, I kind of want the Sijiks to take a position on this one because um, they take some really interesting views elsewhere, but just not when they're talking to a Manish emperor. I, I can kind of understand their sense of self-preservation there, but... I want something a bit more definite. Can we please have some colours pinned to the mast here? Uh, it also talks about how the Daedra were created at this point as well, and how they are perceived to be more attuned to the void of Padme, and it doesn't make them the same as Oblivion, which is worth noting here, that just that they are more attuned to Oblivion, which is kind of interesting in its way because it implies that there's bits of oblivion that are not to do with the Daedra because otherwise they would have made the whole place out of themselves and they did make parts of it out of themselves. You have the Daedric planes um, being made from the substance of the princes if you follow some of the other myths that we have but that's not the whole of the story here. We've got bits of oblivion that are unaligned and uncreated. There's a handful of references to this in other texts. The plane of Infernus, where fire atronachs come from, is one plane that's not related to a prince somehow, but it also means that the substance of oblivion has to be something different from the substance of the Arabis and of Aetherius, purely by virtue of being oblivion, rather than being the creation of the spirits and gods more attuned to the void or more attuned to oblivion in this text. The, the princes and oblivion are not synonymous here. We've also got the mythic era being related to the merithic. You will see in some texts that the mythic era will sometimes be used to talk about both the merithic and the dawn era, but here it's explicitly called out as being the merithic. Just something to bear in mind um, when thinking about other texts as we look at those.
And on that note of trying to squish everything together into one account and one carefully crafted, this is how we think it is, but please don't be offended, here's your views mixed in as well, portion, that's how this particular part of the monomyth ends. And now we take a look at the Yokudin tale known as Satakal the World Skin. It's a little different from some of the other creation myths that we've seen to date. The entities have very different names and take on very different roles. There's quite a few different themes going on here that we don't have elsewhere that I'd like to draw out as we go through. And also, it's told quite differently as well. While the Anuad is supposedly a children's story, this feels quite childlike. It's got very, very simple terms and emotional terms in how it describes what the spirits are doing, which is, I think, a really interesting take. But anyway, so we get started with the book. Satak was first serpent, the snake who came before, and all the worlds to come rested in the glimmer of its scales. But it was so big that there was nothing but, and thus it was coiled around itself, and the worlds to come slid across each other, but none had room to breathe or even be. I'd like to stop and pause there for a second to think about what all that might mean. This is a world where there is everything already. It's all there. There's just pure existence, nothing else going on. And if you have pure existence, nothing can change, nothing can be in a meaningful sense because if it is always there and it's always this thing and on and on and on, then have you got any meaningful way of differentiating between things and knowing what they are? It's a bit like sensory overload in the way I think about it because it's just so much stuff that you don't really know where to start. You're just being bombarded with everything from the cosmos all at once, undifferentiated, so it's just this one thing, which is Satak, but it means that you can't have anything but Satak. And so the world called to something to save them, to let them out, but of course there was nothing outside the first serpent, so aid had to come from inside it. This was Akel, the hungry stomach. Akel made itself known, and Satak could only think about what it was, and it was the best hunger, so it ate and ate. This is a very different set of events from what we know of in other myths and legends about how the Arabis came to be. There isn't even an Arabis at this point. Uh, we think that Satak is the Arabis itself. That feels like it's the most satisfying answer to me at the moment, but it's not complete yet, and it's a direct contradiction of what we know of from other myths, where there is at least the void, there is at least that comparison between being and nothingness, between the Arabis and the stuff outside the Arabis. This has a difference to that in that the difference is coming from within. You're getting the solution from within Satak. And so it's becoming a self-generating thing. It's um, becoming self-determining in some way. 
Soon there was enough room to live in the world and things began. These things were new and they often made mistakes, for there was hardly any time to practice being things before. So most things ended quickly or were not good and gave up on themselves. Now this feels to me like there's been some sort of experimentation going on. There's been possible worlds that have tried to be and not been and worlds that have lasted for a time, some events have happened, and that sort of thing. Trying to find a stable solution, if you like, and a way to carry on being, which is, again, slightly different from what we see when the other myths will talk about the Aedra and the Daedra in this kind of timeless space that the Moorish races, at least, will think about as paradise as such. It's well, not really paradise, but as a good place to be, as something to go back to. Whereas this primal state is one of experimentation and mucking up and being a child, which kind of gives us some reason for the language here. It's described in quite simple terms because what's going on is simple, because the worlds are having to learn how to be, and the beings in the universe are having to learn how to be. Some things were about to start, but they were eaten up as Satak got to that part of its body. This was a violent time. And this kind of reminds me of bits of the Argonian creation myth. There's quite a few parallels between the children of the root and this particular story. There's talk about times of violence and blood and sap, um, in that particular myth, when the Etada fight, or various things that are, I'm assuming the Etada will start to fight and try and assert their will on things, and it gets quite messy. Pretty soon, Akel caused Satak to bite its own heart, and that was the end. The hunger, though, refused to stop, even in death, and so the first serpent shed its skin to begin anew. And I think this is possibly the first Kalpa, or at least some form of subgradation. And again, we've got more parallels with the Argonian myth here, that the dead skin and the act of dying and being reborn is a creative force in this myth, in how it considers the world to work. And you've got the idea of skins being shed, and pretty soon we'll hit the concept of world skins, but I just wanted to prime you with that thought for now that in shedding those skins, it begins new cycles, keeps things going through particular motions of creation and destruction, which in various other places in the Elder Scrolls lore are talked about as the Kalpic cycle. As the old world died, Satakar began, and when things realised this pattern, so did they realise what their part in it was. They began to take names, like Rupka or Tuwaka, and then strode about looking for their skin. As Satakal ate itself over and over, the strongest spirits learned to bypass the cycle by moving at strange angles. They called this process the walkabout, a way of striding between the world skins. And that's a full expression of the Kalpic cycle that I just mentioned. It's the process of the world being birthed with the shedding of the old skin and the beginning of the new, which is then shed again in turn in order to create the next thing. And the Red Guards are 
one of the only cultures to really pick up on this cycle, which is kind of interesting because it has implications for where the Red Guards come from. Some people within the fandom will say that the Red Guards came from a previous Kalpa. If that's the case, then it makes sense for them to know what Kalpas are and how they work in a way that isn't necessarily true of other races. We also see a thing in here called the walkabout, which is a way of going through and between the world skins, way of surviving beyond the world skins. That's potentially linked to a thing called the walking ways. The words sound very similar. Um, and the walking ways are referenced by Vivek in the 36 lessons. And they are potentially ways of attaining some sort of power or godhood. And potentially, if this Redguard myth is the case, it's a way of surviving beyond the Kalpic cycle, or at least going back to the time before, in some sense. You see in, I think it's Vex Teaching, that the Sijic Endeavour and Chim are a return to the first brush of Anu Padme, is the words that's used. So it's again that sense of going back to what was before. There is one difference here that I'd like to highlight, though. It's not really mentioned that Satak Hal becomes anything else after this point. We had Satak having his initial death after biting his heart and becoming Satakal, but Satakal then becomes a self-perpetuating cycle. It's a little strange, I don't really know what to make of it, but it could potentially be something like Anuiel becoming a thing that exists between Kalpas, whereas Anu is a thing that happens before Kalpas in the previous narratives. It could be that something similar to that is going on here. It's just that the naming conventions are similar enough that it made me think, is that what's going on? But also distinct enough, and the stories are distinct enough that I'm not really sure. Ruptka was so big that he was able to place the stars in the sky so the weaker spirits might find their way easier. This practice became so easy for the spirits that it became a place called the Far Shores, a time of waiting until the next skin. This passage is interesting because it messes with our particular understanding of cosmology. The placing of the stars in the sky isn't something that's described elsewhere. The stars are generally what happens when various Etarda try to flee Mundus after having made the mistake of going into the deal with Lorcan and then thinking, oh, I'd better run away before I die. But in this narrative, they are placed there by someone who's planned out how all this is going to work. And it's a way of getting away. The escape is the same, the, that theme's still there, but it's not considered an ideal in other myths, and it's certainly not something that other races seem to try and aspire to, whereas in Redguard religion, you've got the idea that going back to the far shores is something that mortals should be able to attain, something that mortals should be able to do. And that in this is because of the stars. If we're to think that the stars are at least similar to how they are in other myths, then 
it means emulation, it means imitation in a way that's quite similar to how the Ultima are supposed to do it. When we get to the Ultima creation myth, you'll see that Auriel ascended in full view of everyone and showed them how to do it. That parallel here is quite interesting, although even with Auriel it's not linked to the stars in the same way. And finally, before we move on to the next bit, the far shores are considered a time of waiting until the next skin. If the world skins are Kalpas, does that mean that the far shores, which incidentally we visit in the Elder Scrolls Online and is part of Aetherius, is between Kalpas? Does that mean that Aetherius is a realm that is entirely distinct from the cycles of creation and destruction in the world? Part of me wants to say yes, because it's a place that's unaffected by the creation of Mundus, but it's also supposedly the place where the divines are in most faiths. And the divines, the Etada, are those gods that give them part of themselves up to make Mundus. So have they existed within Aetherius as another version of themselves that never made that? I'm not sure, but it's a contradiction, I think, within the law that we don't really know enough about to give a solid answer to. Ruptgar was able to sire many children through the cycles, and so he became known as the Tall Papa. He continued to place stars to map out the void for others, but after so many cycles, there were almost too many spirits to help out. And this seems to imply that we've got different gods in each cycle, different gods in each Kalpa. Firstly, it serves the sense of showing that the Red Guards have an awful lot of gods. There's a god of too many gods, if you listen to some, some texts, and various other gods that are just entirely incidental and not really relevant to what's going on, but they just are. And quite how this works in terms of reconciling it with other faiths where you have constant figures who are always what they are is a little difficult for me to wrap my head around. But it could also be that if these are Kalpas that we're looking at, we do have some evidence that the Etada have different roles between Kalpas or in different Kalpas. So is the expression about creating new gods just a way of thinking about, well, this person was, say, a god of death in the previous Kalpa, now he's a god of harvest. Oh, they must be different people. You can't be a god of death and a god of harvest at once. That might be some way of doing it, but I don't know for sure. He made himself a helper from the detritus of past skins, and this was Sep, or Second Serpent. Sep had much of the hungry stomach still left in him, multiple hungers from multiple skins. And this is where we get a very definite analogue. We've not been quite sure exactly who the various equivalents are until this point, but Sep is very definitely the Redguard version of Lorcan. He's the one that starts to create the world, we'll see in a bit, and he's also in some way secondary or related to the first god. I'm hesitant to say that Rutger is the same as Akatosh or Magnus or something like that. There's none of his abilities that really map onto either of those, but he is 
something that is primary to Lorcan being secondary. Something else to consider here um, is the role of the helper. I think it's quite interesting that we ultimately see a change in how the Red Guards see their helpers and the god who is primarily rooting for them. The god of the mortals, Tuwaka, is the one who guides the Red Guards to the far shores. So there's obviously been some sort of replacement that's gone on here, and we'll see what precisely what that is a little further down in this passage. But we've got a better helper in Tuwaka is the is the idea, I think. Someone who actually knows how to get to back to the far shore and, and isn't subject to the flaws that Sep is. And we've also got an interesting first flag here that Sep is made from the detritus of past skins. Now, Sep, Sep goes on to create the world from a ball of disused skin. It's possible that he's basically only doing what he knows in this narrative. He was created from a past skin, and so obviously that's what you do. You take old skins and you make new stuff. It's entirely understandable that Sep does what he does, because that's what he came from. He was so hungry that he could not think straight. Sometimes he would just eat the spirits he was supposed to help, but Tall Papa would always reach in and take them back out. Finally, Tired of helping Tall Papa, Sep went and gathered the rest of the old skins and balled them up, tricking spirits to help him, promising them that this was how you reach the new world, by making one out of the old. This is possibly where we get another direct link to Lokan. We've obviously got the creation of the world happening here, and particularly taking what's gone before and making it into something new, which we also see in the Anuad, Anu takes the remnants of the Twelve Worlds and smashes them together to make Nern. But I think there's also some link to what Lokan is up to, that Lokan has a plan and a reason for doing what he does to push people beyond what's gone before. And this narrative reinforces that Sep is making something that hasn't come before although the Red Guards do have a very negative attitude to that particular action. It's not something that fits in with their nice, neat cycles of creation and rebirth and death and rebirth that you've got in the normal cycle of the world, so to speak. These spirits loved this way of living as it was easier. No more jumping from place to place. More spirits joined in, believing this was good thinking. Tor Papa just shook his head. Pretty soon, the spirits on the skin ball started to die, because they were very far from the real world of Satakal, and they found it was too far to jump back to the far shores now. This is interesting thematically to me, because it says to me that people have decided to take part in something that's not alive, not something that's real, but something that is fake, something that is dead. And so, in taking part in something that is dead, you are killing yourself. That's what the spirits are doing here. They are becoming mortal through their choices, which ties in in a very allegorical way to the other creation myths from the Elder Scrolls, but it also links to various real-world myths and how tales like Persephone 
linked to once you've tasted the fruit of the underworld, you can't go back. That sort of theme, I think, is what's going on here. And it's also a link to the process of subgradiation in the, or subgradients rather, um, within the earlier parts of the monomyth, you see people making souls for themselves so that they can understand and they birth their own souls who then birth souls in turn and you've got that gradual progression from Anu to Anuiel to Oriel and then from Padme to Sithis to Lokan that kind of progression and descent uh, you can't go back you can't say that Lokan will now become Sithis again and because he can take some various other bits and make himself Sithis again. That is what this passage is saying. It's a roundabout way of describing that process. And it also means that they can't get back to Aetherius, that you've got some spirits trapped and not able to get back to the far shores and back to the timeless time, the place where you can always exist and carry on going. The spirits that were left pleaded with Tollpuppa to take them back, but Grim Rupka would not, and he told the spirits that they must learn new ways to follow the stars to the far shores now. If they could not, they must live on through their children, which was not the same as before. I think this is very much as called a kind of paradise lost through transformation, a paradise lost through choices. It almost feels like a more direct parallel to the Garden of Eden in a way that we don't see in other Tamrielic creation myths. It's that you are now here, you have made your choice to be here, and you are not allowed back. The other myths portray this as a process rather than a choice. We've got Rutger here saying you're not allowed back and if he would change his mind then they might be able to be let back which is quite a different perspective and I think this is also potentially where we start to see the distinction between gods and mortals coming in and potentially although this is me reaching a bit, the beginning of the thoughts of clean and unclean things that we see in Red Guard culture as a whole. Things that, things that are linked to sep, to death, are things that will poison people in a way that will stop them from being able to reach the far shores because they are linked to death in the same way that the spirits were linked to death through being on the skin ball that is Mundus. Sep, however, needed more punishment, and so Torpapa squashed the snake with a big stick. This has been the subject of some speculation that I've seen throughout the community as to precisely what the big stick is. It's possible that it's the secret tower of Vivek's talking the 36 lessons, but I'm not totally sure. It's the same sort of shape, it's just a rod, it's, but it's not necessarily something that's a punishment for Lokan in the case of the tower, that you think about Lokan seeing, Lokan is the one to have seen the tower and to have gained an understanding through that, not to have been punished by being hit with a stick. So I'm not sure what to make of that one. The hunger fell out of Sep's dead mouth and was the only thing left of the second serpent. 
While the rest of the New World was allowed to strive back to godhood, Sep could only slink around in a dead skin or swim about in the sky, a hungry void that jealously tried to eat the stars. And we get an awful lot of Lorcan parallels here. The hunger falling out of Sep's dead mouth makes me think of how Lorcan's divine spark was torn from him at convention and then flung to Mundus. I don't think we have any indication in Redguard myths that the hunger was something that was then imbued into the world, but the parallel strikes me as a bit too much to pass up. And you've also got talk about the rest of the New World being allowed to strive back to godhood. That's being allowed to look for the walkabout and the walking ways and being allowed to transcend Mundus in whatever way possible. But Sep can only wander around in a dead skin and swim about in the sky. The walking about in a dead skin is something that we see in particularly the Khajiiti myth. In the Khajiiti myth, um, Lokaj is punished and made to walk Nern for many phases. And that feels similar to what's going on here, that, that Sep can slink around in a dead skin, can be a mortal, can do all this, that and the other, but can't do anything else. And swimming about in the sky is a nod to the serpent constellation. The serpent constellation, according to the book The Firmament, is a collection of stars that aren't stars. They are called unstars, pretty much, and they are a collection of things that attack the other constellations. The guardian constellations guard their charges against the serpent. And you're seeing that that's now being given narrative weight. Sep is the serpent constellation. And so Lorcan is the unstars that is the serpent constellation. And that was a fairly short one, but a very different perspective and filled with quite a lot more in the terms of normative input as to how the world should be than we see in other creation myths. And now we have a look at the Cyrodiilic tale known as Shazar's Song. This is centred around the stories that are told in Cyrodiil and therefore have quite a mannish outlook on things. It's pretty much the only mannish perspective that we get apart from the Yakudin creation myth. So this is the only mannish Tanrielic myth that we actually have, which is quite interesting if you think about it in terms of what races make up Tamriel. You'd almost expect it to be an equal representation, but it's not really. The myths that are told here are generally based on Murish legends and myths, if not explicitly Murish in their current form, which is really quite interesting. It paints a picture of a cosmology that is pretty much soaked in Murish terms and outlooks from the get-go, despite cultures not really having many Murish roots and many Murish records as part of their ongoing way of being. And even within this one, we'll see a few little nods to Murish 
legends and Moorish ways of thinking as we go through, particularly in some of the terms. But shall we get to the text? This was a new thing that Shazar described to the gods, becoming mothers and fathers, being responsible and making great sacrifices with no guarantee of success, but Shazar spoke beautifully to them and moved them beyond mystery and tears. Now this myth starts off with the end point of the Sijic creation myth that was potentially suggesting that things could maybe have descended from gods to mortals by way of being a parent. And this kicks off with Shazar talking to the gods about being mothers and fathers right at the get-go. It's suggesting mortality and the current ways of mortality as being fundamentally baked into the universe in a way that other myths don't really, which is quite interesting if you think about the way that the Moorish religions, particularly the Alt-Murray religions, vilify Lorcan. If they had this as a starting point, then the Mur are doing a fantastic smear job on the person who created the mortal plane, who was quite upfront about all this, if you think about it. Thus the Aedra gave free birth to the world, the beasts and the beings making these things from parts of themselves. This free birth was very painful, and afterwards the Aedra were no longer young and strong and powerful as they had been from the beginning of days. Now this is quite interesting because it talks about Aedra, and Aedra, as we learn from the book Aedra and Daedra, is a Moorish term, which suggests that even here, even within this most Cyrillic of Cyrillic things, that the perspective of the Mur is quite central to how these men are thinking about it, which we can kind of expect in the Cyrillic's case because we're looking at a culture that spent so long being slaves to the Aelids. So, of course, they've got to have picked up some degree of Moorish culture. I can kind of forgive them for that in terms of how they think about their gods. and But it's one thing to bear in mind when thinking about the wider law that the term Adra is a Moorish thing. And when there's some talk about the Adra, you need to establish whether we're talking about the Adra as in the divines, as they will be, but or the Adra as the Mer see them. There's quite a bit of overlap here, which can get a little frustrating. And we've also got here the Adra giving free birth to the world, which is a culmination of some of the parenthood things that we see in the myth of the Arabis that the Sijiks put forward. It was kind of a suggestion, half-hearted, alongside a lot of other possible, equally plausible suggestions. But this is very definitely giving birth to the world. But you've also got the making things from parts of themselves, which isn't quite birth. It is, suggests some sort of conscious shaping and a process of creation, which... If you look at the beginning of the monomyth, the men will say, oh, the gods created us. They won't say, we are descended from the gods. That's a fundamental distinction between man and myrrh. But that being made from is still part of 
dissent in the broad term. That this does contrast a little bit with the way that we see it in the Anuad, where the Etada become the Elnafei, and then they're split into the Wandering and Old Elnafei, which are split along ideological lines, not really how they came to be. And the Old Elnafei are the ancestors of the Mer, and the Wandering Elnafei are the ancestors of men. If we take the Anuad's account, then there's no distinction between creation and descent. And this slightly blurs the lines with that. As I said, we've got the making things from themselves. So if you take a part of yourself and make something of it, is it your descendant or is it your creation? In a way, we can talk about mortal babies being made by their mothers and fathers by taking parts of themselves and making something new. So which is it? It's that ambiguity is very present here in a way that it's not elsewhere. There's also the suggestion of death here, but not the reality of death. There's talk about the birth being painful and the Aedra no longer being strong and young and powerful, but there's definitely a diminishment, but there is no death. We're not talking about the these beings dying and all having to mate with each other to stay alive, as we see in the Yakudan creation myth. This is in strict contrast to the Murish view, which talks about the Aedra dying in order to become something else. Some Aedra were disappointed and bitter in their loss, and angry with Shazar and with all creation, for they felt Shazar had lied and tricked them. These Aedra, the gods of the Aldma, led by Auriel, were disgusted by their enfeebled selves and by what they had created. I think this is a lovely little piece of compromise here between the perspective of man and myrrh, because you've got some Aedra who were disappointed, you've got some who don't want the mortal world to continue now they've realised what it entails, but some quite obviously do from how, from how you look at this. And so you've got an interesting way of explaining the schism between man and myrrh and how they look at it. You've got some who are angry at losing power, and then later on we'll see you've got some that look on it and are pleased with everything. So, and you've got a reason for the distinction there between the mannish and myrrhish gods to a greater degree than you do with other creation myths at this point. Everything is spoiled for now and for all time, and the most we can do is teach the elven races to suffer nobly, with dignity, and chastise ourselves for our folly, and avenge ourselves upon Shazar and his allies. Thus are the gods of the elves dark and brooding, and thus are the elves ever dissatisfied with mortality, and always proud and stoic, despite the harshness of this cruel and indifferent world. Other Aedra looked upon creation and were well pleased. These Aedra, the gods of men and beast folk, led by Akatosh, praised and cherished their wards, the mortal races. I want to pause here quickly and talk about the way that they're talking about different types of Aedra. The Aedra is being described as a class of being here, and essentially being used as the people who made the immaterial world and the ancestors of all the mortal races. 
and you've got the ones that like it and the ones that don't. But if you look at the pantheons of the various races, then you can see that there's quite a bit of overlap here. You've got Mara, who is the most common deity in across all Tamrielic pantheons virtually, and then you've got RK and you've got various others that are very definitely in both Murish and Manish pantheons. This divide that has the Murish gods being displeased with creation and the Manish gods being thoroughly pleased with creation is kind of interesting. And this text also makes quite a difference between Akatosh and Oriel. You'll see several other texts claim that Oriel is simply the elven Akatosh and that Akatosh is a Murish deity and that Akatosh is simply another word for Oriel, depending on who's speaking. There's an awful lot of confusion about precisely who is what and whether they're separate beings or not. This is possibly made a bit muddier by the events of the Middle Dawn in the First Era, where Akatosh had his Murish bits pulled out of him by the Murakati Selective. So it's possible that this narrative has been influenced by that event, but it's also possible that Oriel and Akatosh were fundamentally different beings to start with. You'll see texts within the law and opinions and discussions within the law community that support both of these perspectives, but I just think it's interesting that this particular text brings out that contradiction in a way that's a lot starker than the way that other texts present it. And so the gods of men then go on to say, We have suffered and are diminished for all time, but the mortal world we have made is glorious, filling our hearts and spirits with hope. Let us teach the mortal races to live well, to cherish beauty and honour, and to love one another as we love them. Thus are the gods of men tender and patient, and thus are men and beast folk greater in heart for joy or suffering, and ambitious for greater wisdom and a better world. That's a really interesting distinction in terms of the outlooks of the, the different two races, but I think I've possibly gone over that enough already, and if you want to have a look at that a bit more in depth, then you can look at the book Varieties of Faith and the earlier sections of the monomyth, which make the distinction between these two types of pantheons a lot more obvious. I'm kind of curious about the grouping together of men and beast folk here. It suggests that the beast folk may have a similar purpose and outlook to men, which I'm not sure entirely holds up. There's a potentially a sharing in outlook. This is particularly the case if you look at the Khajiiti myth, who consider that Nerni is a place of suffering and trial and hardship, but whether or not that's a good thing or not, they're not really sure. They credit Azura as their creator and Fadomai as their mother and the mother of most of the gods, if not all the gods, and therefore you'd think that a Padmaic set of beings would go along with the Manish view, but the Khajiit don't really. But they are 
generally some of the races that do have that greater heart for joy and suffering and are trying to make the world better and change the world in a way that the Mer don't really. This split isn't quite so neat as saying that the men and beast folk definitely all think this way, but there's certainly an ideological slant there. I don't really want to talk about the Argonian perspective here because it is so different, but it's potentially one way of thinking about how the men and beast folk and why the men and beast folk are grouped together here. And also, if you look at the Khajiiti myth explicitly, it talks about a group of men that could not hold their shape when you're talking about how the Khajiit came to be. So that's potentially another reason for why the beast folk are grouped with men here. Now, when the Daedra lords heard Shazar, they mocked him and the other Aedra. Cut parts of ourselves off and lose them forever? That's stupid. You'll be sorry. We're far smarter than you, for we'll create a new world out of ourselves. But we will not cut it off or let it mock us. But we will make this world within ourselves forever ours and under our complete control. I just want to pause here and note that they're grouping Shazar along with the other Aedra, which kind of answers a question that gets asked a lot in the law community of, is Lokhan, who is obviously Shazar in this telling, an Aedra? There's many and various answers to this, and the better answers for no will take a lot more time than I have to explain now. But it's a very, very definite stance here that Shazar and thereby Lokhan is seen as an ancestor of men in a way that potentially the Mer don't see that. So the Daedra lords created the Daedric realms and all the ranks of lesser Daedra, great and small. And for the most part, the Daedra lords were pleased with this arrangement, for they always had worshippers and servants and playthings close to hand. One of the things that I wanted to draw out here was that it talks about the Daedra creating the Daedric realms. It doesn't talk about the creation of oblivion, which if you look into various other bits of the politics of oblivion, there are realms that are unaligned to Daedric princes and places where lesser Daedra have banded together and created realms of their own that aren't subject to the whim of any particular prince. So oblivion as a state, as a plane of existence, exists independently of the Daedric realms here. And that's potentially a reason why we see the term Daedric realms rather than oblivion being used. However, the way that the Lesser Daedra are talked to here makes me think that this isn't the whole truth either. If you look at some of the Lesser Daedra, particularly if you think about the Dramora, they have been noted to change masters, change allegiances in a way that you wouldn't really think is possible if this formation of the Daedric realms and the Lesser Daedra is entirely the truth. It says earlier that the Daedra lords explicitly said that they weren't going to cut parts of themselves off and lose control of part of themselves. The way that the Dramora are acting is entirely in contradiction with that. So this obviously isn't the whole truth of everything that's going on in Oblivion. That whole perspective of Oblivion being just the manifestation of the princes and 
being populated with their obedient servants is in direct contrast to the things that we know about the Dremora and particularly about the other realms of Oblivion. So we're obviously not getting the whole truth here. It's quite obvious that however this story is being told is emphasising the Aedra far more than the Daedra in terms of both what they venerate and what they know. But at the same time, they sometimes looked with envy on the mortal realms, for though the mortals were foul and feeble and contemptible, their passions and ambitions were far more surprising and entertaining than the antics of the lesser Daedra. This suggests something that is kind of implicit in the way that Shazara has been talking about the creation of the world, about creating something new, something different, but it's never really explicitly spelled out until here, really, that if you create something out of yourself, it can only really express parts of yourself in a different way. So the Daedric princes, in a way, already know all of the stuff that they can create because they can spend however much time getting to know themselves and that will only take it so far. Whereas the synthesis of the way different spirits put together Mundus can produce stuff that is entirely different from the parent elements, if you like, that, and it can then produce a synthesis that is quite different from what's gone before, which is why that's so interesting. Thus do the Daedra Lords court and seduce certain amusing specimens of the mortal races, especially the passionate and powerful. It gives the Daedra Lords special pleasure to steal away from Shazar and the Aedra, the greatest and most ambitious mortals. Not only are you fools to mutilate yourselves, gloat the Daedra Lords, but you cannot even keep the best pieces, which prefer the glory and power of the Daedra Lords to the feeble vulgarity of the mush-minded Aedra. This part about the Daedra Lords courting and seducing certain amusing specimens among the mortal races is interesting because it talks about the passionate and powerful. And we have a quote from Ngasta, who was one of the antagonists in the Elder Scrolls Adventures Red Guards, that the Daedra Lords inspired the passions that they are associated with, which perhaps suggests that the way that the Daedra interact with the world does influence it. They are putting a part of themselves into the world in a way by influencing the behaviour of mortals. Either that, or we don't know the whole truth about how the Daedra and the mortal realm interact entirely. And that's about it for our waltz through the Cyrodiilic monomyth. I just wanted to finish with a discussion on the figure of Shazar, who's been key through all this. There's not really an awful lot to say apart from he is quite obviously the mannish version of Lorcan in this particular telling. He's changed quite a bit in how he's been seen throughout Tamriel's history, and I would urge you to look at the book Shazar and the Divines, which goes into a bit more detail on that particular aspect of him. The name Shazar quite clearly owes quite a bit more to the Nordic shore than the Merish Lorcan, but as the Nords don't actually have a creation myth within the game lore, then it's not going to have made it into this particular compilation. 
I also think it's quite interesting that these Cyrodelics put a bit more flesh on the bones of what the Daedra are compared to most of the other myths within this particular text. It's clear that they have a definite place within Cyrodelic culture and within Manish culture in general, and rather than being entirely excluded from the equation in the way that they are with Moorish cultures and in a way they are with the Sijiks as well. They get generalised to the point of not really having a distinct identity in the myth of the Arabis. They get pointed out as the founders of Oblivion, but that's about it. Their motives and the characterization of them is a lot starker when we look at the Cyrodiilic creation myth. And now we finish up with the Alt-Murray tale, The Heart of the World. And we, this week we are looking at the Alt-Murray creation myth, which for some reason or other has seems to be picked up by fans as the default, at least in terms of how the entities are talked about and the names that they're given. It's the one that places Lorcan as the trickster, as the one who is doing very, very bad things in creating Mundus and kind of sets the tone for how Moorish perspectives in general seem to consider Mundus a bad thing for the most part. That said, we don't really have that much in the way of how Bosma think about Mundus as a whole as such or how other types of Mur consider Mundus to be. So this is kind of the default version, as it were both in terms of how the fans think about the world and how elves, apart from the Dunmer, think about creation. Note, this part was known as the High Elven Altmurray creation myth and it's called the heart of the world. Anu encompassed and encompasses all things. So that he might know himself, he created Anuiel, his soul and soul of all things. I just want to pause there and say that this process is the process of subgradients that you'll see some people talking about and the process of splitting one god from another and creating the next step down so to speak in terms of the divine ladder. It's also something that links to the Gnostic idea of emanation that the godhead will almost by its nature create things that will split off from it, shed off from it, and create the next part of the creational ladder down. Um, this is something that influences a lot of how Elder Scrolls cosmology works. Anuiel, as all souls, was given to self-reflection, and for this he needed to differentiate between his forms, attributes, and intellects. Thus was born Sithis, who was the sum of all the limitations Anuiel would utilise to ponder himself. This is the creation of Sithis, who the elves typically revile. Um, it's the idea of limitation and constraint, which they really don't like. And, however, as it points out here, you need to split things off in order to think about what different things are. Otherwise, you've just got a mush of everything and you can't separate things out. Sithis is a necessary component here. And that's possibly something that this myth doesn't recognise in its fullness. 
At first, the Arabis was turbulent and confusing as Anuiel's ruminations went on without design. Aspects of the Arabis then asked for a schedule to follow or procedures whereby they might enjoy themselves a little longer outside of perfect knowledge. And this harkens back to the Red Guard and Argonian creation myths. Both of those texts, if you look at Satakal, the Worldskin, and Children of the Root, have this notion of memory, of remembering what's gone before as one of the essential parts of what's going on while the Etada are forming. And so you've already got some notion of time before we even get to the time god. There's duration and before, before that point, which also ties in with the Anuad. And you've also got here the first hint that limitation is a good thing, is a freeing thing. The idea that they might enjoy themselves outside of perfect knowledge. The idea that ignorance is bliss, almost. But you've also got hints here towards greater things within the Elder Scrolls cosmology that you need to be limited in order to progress, in order to grow, is one of the things that comes through when you talk about concepts like Chim and so on. So that's the first hint that we have of that here. So that he might know himself this way too, Anu created Oriel, the soul of his soul. Oriel bled through the Arabis as a new force called time. This mirrors the creation of Akatosh in some of the Manish creation myths quite explicitly, although it does bring up some red flags for me when I think about the text Shazar's song, which we'll get to at some point in this series, which flags Akatosh as a Moorish deity, so who isn't mentioned here at all. So you've got the notion of Oriel as personified time and the first example of it, which is a direct link and a direct comparison with Akatosh. With time, various aspects of the Arabis began to understand their natures and limitations. They took names like Magnus or Mara or Zen. One of these, Lorcan, was more of a limit than a nature, so he could never last long anywhere. Now this matches what we've seen in the previous myths as well, that Lorcan has more of Sithis in him. If you look back to the Red Guard creation myth in particular, you've got Sep, who has more of the hungry stomach in him. That's exactly what's going on here, that there's more of limit than anything else going on with Lokan, and elsewhere Lokan is described as a barely formed urge, in that he's a lot of nothing and not very much of something, so he's more limit than he is substance. As he entered every aspect of Anuiel, Lorcan would plant an idea that was almost wholly based on limitation. He outlined a plan to create a soul for the Arabis, a place where the aspects of aspect might be allowed to self-reflect. Now this process that's described here, entering into every aspect of Anuiel, is something that we haven't seen anywhere. The idea that Etada can meld and coexist with one another within themselves is very weird and almost seems to go against what happens in the previous paragraph. It's the idea that Lokan, if he's a limit almost, could well just have wholly different properties to what's going on. And the idea that there's a place where aspects of aspects might even be allowed to self-reflect, then that means that the Etada aren't able to self-reflect as they are, that there is no real consciousness for these beings or 
no children maybe, without the ability to subgradiate and self-reflect and create things that are smaller than themselves. And there's part of me also that thinks that if we assume that the Falmor are trying to collapse the towers and bring about the end of Mundus, which is frankly questionable anyway, but if we assume that to start with, does that make their entire goal futile? If the natural state of the Etada and the gods that the Thalmor want to get back to, maybe, if their natural state is to be a thing that wants to be able to self-reflect and create other stuff, then are we just doomed to repeat the cycle regardless? Although I don't think that that's necessarily the case, but they would have to do some serious tinkering. Otherwise, you notice that Lokan is the driver here and outlining a plan to create a soul for the Arabis is Lokan's idea. You'd have to remove Lokan from the scheme of things in order to remove the possibility of Mundus. And the original text that talks about the Thalmor wanting to destroy the world doesn't go that far. It's simply the removal of Talos which, unless you equate the two, which is a possibility, uh, won't actually do the job. He gained many followers. Even Oriel, when told he would become the king of the New World, agreed to help Lokan. So they created the Mundus, where their own aspects might live and become the Etada. Now this is another layer that we don't really see anywhere else, that these initial spirits, this Oriel is then having a soul which will become the Etada, whereas most myths equate Oriel and that level of spirit as the Etada themselves, although there is a text that only says that the Etada are only the Etada once they've died, which is part of the myth of the Arabis, but that's possibly because the myth of the Arabis, the Sijic version of events, is mirroring some stuff that's going on in the Altmeri creation myth here, that this is the first one to mention the Etada as the dead things, and that's where the Sijiks are getting their ideas from, or at least deriving their tales from, with the myth of the Arabis. But this was a trick. As Lokan knew, this world contained more limitation than not, and was therefore hardly a thing of Anu at all. Mundus was the house of Sithis. I just wanted to flag here that this is a little awkward if you think about the traditional unfolding of the soul stacking and soul subgradients that's present in the Anuad. This is equating Anu and Sithis, whereas the other texts that we have equate Anu and Padme, which is a little strange. There are some texts that say that there's just Anu and his other, which was what was said at the start of the monomyth. But it also seems that if we try and reconcile all this stuff, then we're going to have to skip a level of subgradient somewhere, or at least blend a level of subgradient somewhere. somewhere. It's not as neat as we'd like it to be, maybe. And, and I'd also like to point out that with the phrase the House of Sithis, Sithis is referred to as the start of all true houses by Vivek in the 36 lessons. And the start of all true houses, that's about saying that that's not part of us, or they are not us, we are us. And the ability to differentiate is key here. 
and any expression of the idea of houses and divide yourself amongst your houses, which occurs in a few texts, is relating to the fundamental division and separation and definition almost that is only possible when Sithis is invoked. As their aspects began to die off, many of the Etard have vanished completely. Some escaped, like Magnus, and that's why there are no limitations to magic. Others, like Ifri, transformed themselves into the Elnafe, the Earth Bones, so that the whole world might not die. Now this is equating the Elnafe with the Earth Bones themselves. There are some confirmations of this that we see in ESO when you talk to um, aspects of Ifri, they will refer to themselves as an Ifri, almost, and equating Ifri with the earth bones in itself as a law of nature, as Baladas Demnavani points out in the Elder Scrolls 3 when you speak to him. And so you've got gods laying down their lives in order to make everything stable and make it carry on. Although this doesn't necessarily marry up with the divines, with the eight that we see getting worshipped later, if you think about how it all hangs together. If there are some aspects where it overlaps potentially, but because you've got Akatosh as time and you've got Lorcan as the missing ninth is space. But if you think about what the other eight represent as things as things like love and commerce and knowledge they're not fundamental to the laws of physics so to speak so the earth bones are not really anything to do with the divines as such or the adra as the altma would have us think about it some had to marry and make children just to last each generation was weaker than the last and soon there were oldma darkness caved in Lorcan made armies out of the weakest souls and named them men and brought Sithis into every quarter. Now that's what happens with the rest of the souls. The ones that marry, I think, are the ones that become the Aedra because they're not necessarily the things holding Mundus together and making Mundus function if we take this account as true. However, we've also got another mystery that's cropped up that... Lorcan making armies out of the weakest souls and naming and naming them men. This is potentially an admission that men and Mer come from the same place, but it's also not because you've got Lorcan transforming souls here. You've got the souls being taken by Lorcan and making them into something, which is potentially where the difference between the Aldma and men creeps in but the difference is not really there it's only because Lokan did something to them that they that they are different that they are men they're still derived from the same source potentially it feels almost like they were derived from the oldma which is a very very different and weird perspective if you think about how men think about themselves there's no account uh, that says that men who do think that they were created are derived from the same set of spirits as the Oldma. Auriel pleaded with Anu to take them back, 
that he had already filled their places with something else. That his soul was gentler and granted Auriel his bow and shield so that he might save the Aldmer from the hordes of men. I just also wanted to flag here that it's a bit weird that Anu has already filled their places with something else. We have no indication of what that something else might be. And unless it's something to do with what Lokhan is doing here. But that's purely speculation on my part. We have no indication of what this something else might be. And it's also yet another parallel with the Yokudan tale that Tor Papa wouldn't let the spirits back to the far shores because no. It also reminds me a bit of Eru and the Valar in the Middle-earth mythology. The idea that nothing can be done to change the music. And once the Ainur have sung it, it's not something that can be changed. That it's that Eru decrees it will be so, and then it will just carry on. There's a line somewhere um, that says that even Melkor may not alter the music in Eru's despite. So this is all potentially, if we're to think of Anu as a being that has a will, which the elves might, or at least a direction, then be functioning in accordance with Anu's will, if you argue it that way. But his soul was gentler and granted Auriel his bow and shield so that he might save the Aldmer from the hordes of men. Some had already fallen, like the Kaima, who listened to Tainted Etarda, and others, like the Bosma, who had soiled time's line by taking mannish wives. This is an account of how the different types of myrrh came to be, but it's also quite different from both the other accounts that we have of the Chimeri Exodus and the creation of the Bosma, because it still feels like it's happening in the Dawn era. Time isn't straightened out yet, and this is a different time that these events happen if you look at other accounts. The most reliable account that we have of when the Chimer Exodus happened was in the Middle Merithic, if I remember my timelines correctly, from places like Beyond the Ages of Man and so on. But that's totally at odds with what's going on in this text here. And the Bosma, if you listen to some of their myths, they just wanted a different life from the rest of the Aldma, and so just departed for Tamriel to get back to nature. Or they were transformed from something that was pre-Aldma by Ifri. This is yet another take on what the Aldmer are, which is essentially accusing them of being half-breeds like the Breton, but, but potentially with more Murishness in them, rather than more man, as we see with the Bretons. Auriel could not save Altmora, the Elderwood, and it was lost to men. I just want to pause here because that's a little incendiary if you think about where men start. Men, if you listen to their myths, start in at Mora. But it also implies, and is backed up by some text in Varieties of Faith, that the elves were the first rulers of Atmora. And that potentially elves and men coexisted on Atmora for a time at least. 
they were chased south and east to Old Elnafay, and Lorcan was close behind. He shattered that land into many. Now, this is really interesting if you think about how the elves think about their homeland, which is Old Elnafay or Old Meris. That the elves didn't start in Old Meris. That goes counter to what we hear in the Anuad, where the old Elnafay, who would become the Oldma, just stay in one place and keep themselves to themselves and try and keep up their old traditions and all the rest of it. And that's pretty much the way that we see the Ultma behaving throughout most of Tamriel's history. But from this account, they end up in old Elnafay as a refuge from the Elnafay Wars, which is a little different. And we've also got here that... Lokan shattered that land into many, which is, again, very different, because Old Elnafay, if you listen to the Anuad's tale, is the one of the fragments of the Twelve Worlds, and is just deposited into the composite thing that is Mundus. Although that does, in a way, marry up with the Anuad, which says that the Old Elnafay realm became Tamriel, in that this land was split by the Elnafay Wars, by this conflict between Oriel and Lokan. And that's what makes the world as it is today, which is, roughly speaking, what the Anuad says. Finally, Trinamac, Oriel's greatest knight, knocked Lokan down in front of his army and reached in with more than hands to take his heart. He was undone. And this is the event where Lorcan's heart gets ripped out and kind of finalises the creation of Mundus. However, it's I just want to call back to the Kaima. The Kaima were only really the Kaima once they decided to leave Old Meris or Somerset, depending on your timelines. And so Trinamac, after trying to stop them leaving gets transformed into Malakath. But with this account, the Kaima happen before Malakath does, which suggests that either the timing of events here is wrong, or there's something else going on with Trinamac transforming into Malakath. And if you look at the text Morlock Orkfather, Morlock does the transformation himself. He rips his shame out. And I think it's the same thing again with the phrase more than hands by which he does it. So you've got Moloch as doing something self-transformational for potentially for the first time for any Etada, if you think about it, but rather than having it done to him by Boethia, which is the conventional narrative. The men dragged Lorcan's body away and swore blood vengeance on the heirs of Oriel for all time. And so here we have the perennial conflict between men and myrrh, or at least the justification for it. This is potentially, as it's an Alt-Murray tale, something for, that the Altmer can use to justify hating men. Because th they hate us, us first because we killed Lorcan and they swore vengeance on us. That strikes me as more a piece of propaganda than anything else. Uh, not necessarily propaganda, but bias on the Altmer's part about how this war 
fell out. Although, I do find it a little interesting that Lockhart's body has been taken away at this point. We'll see some stuff about the heart in a second, but quite what happens to the rest of Lockhart's body is something we never really hear about, and something I find kind of interesting, because what did the men do with it? But when Trinomac and Oriel tried to destroy the heart of Lockhart, it laughed at them. It said, This heart is the heart of the world, for one was made to satisfy the other. And so here we see the fulfilment of what the world is for. The world was made to satisfy Lokan, to um, produce something that Lokan wished for. Precisely what that is, that's something that's fairly hotly debated, but I've got my own opinion in a cast I did on who is Lokan some time ago. If you want my views on why the world was created and what it was meant to do, listen to that and get some more detail. But just in brief here, I would say that Lorcan created the world in order to limit others so they could move beyond that limit, uh, with everything that that implies for transcendence and so on. So Oriel fastened the thing to an arrow and let it fly long into the sea, where no aspect of the new world may ever find it. And that's a rather optimistic ending to this particular myth, because if you've played The Elder Scrolls 3, you know that it has been found, and that the Dwemer are the ones that can find it um, and start tinkering with it and doing odd things to it. Um, you've also got this particular passage that talks about the indestructibility of Lokhan's heart, and you see it kind of shrivel up and disappear at the end of The Elder Scrolls 3. So either this text is wrong, that the heart of Lokhan is not able to be destroyed, or something happened to it to make it indestructible then, but destructible now. And I think there's hints of that in the text of the five songs of King Wolfarth, which talks about making a change to Lokhan's heart or Lokhan's heart being made solid by the tools that the Duemi use on it. So there's potentially a transformation that's happened there, um, which, now I think about it, chimes quite nicely with Azura's epilogue to The Elder Scrolls Three, where she talks about the god's heart being freed. So it's possible that whatever the... Dwemer did to the heart was what was broken by the Nereverine at the end of the Elder Scrolls 3, which is kind of what you're supposed to do, so it feels like it's kind of gone to plan, although the what you see in front of you is really not indicative of that, which is kind of interesting. And that's it for the monomyth. I do hope you've enjoyed my somewhat scatterbrained read through all this all these texts and i hope that you've got a better perspective now on how these texts talk about the creation of mundus how they all fit together to create something of a composite picture of how the world works this one in particular i think has more influence than most in how the fans think about that how things are put together or at least the forms of it 
there's a lot of acknowledgement in this text, seemingly, that things aren't quite as good as the Altma would want them to be. There's hints looking at this text that don't really marry up with other accounts of timelines that are generally more trusted. And there's also hints that the Altma aren't necessarily getting it right, I don't think. But I do think they're getting it right in terms of the things that are happening. But I don't think they're getting it right in terms of how they're thinking about it on a normative level, shall we say. That they're thinking of these things as bad, as something that shouldn't happen. But the way the text presents them here is a little bit more neutral and the ideas that are are presented is what essentially allows the world to be anyway. And I think, as I said, there are hints that even if the Altma do manage to bring the world back into a pre-Mundus state, then they will just simply start the cycle again. You've been listening to Written in Uncertainty, a podcast written and presented by Aramithius. Music for this podcast has been kindly provided by Jan Glembotsky. Check that out on SoundCloud under Songs from the Lost Land, and I'll see you next time. Do you like adventure? Yeah. Do you like laughing? Uh, yeah. Would you like to listen to a group of people you don't know play D&D and reference retro pop culture you vaguely remember? Um... Excellent. You're going to love Committee Quest. We play D&D in the world of Amarin. We use adventure modules and supplements made by people in the community. We also have a sweet synthwave backing track. Come and join us on our adventure. Volume 1 has been completed. Volume 2 coming the end of January. You can find us on iTunes, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Rated M for Mature. Because we don't believe in scripted advertisements, we're going to do this raw. I'm regretting this decision. No, you're not. This is the DL Weekly Gaming News. There's nothing to regret here, because it's your source for everything in the gaming world. Every week, we bring it to you, unscripted unfiltered. That's why it's rated M for Mature, right, Brenna? Among many, many other reasons. I am one of your hosts, Jameson. And as he already said, I am Brenna, the other glorious part to this quality podcast. You can find us every week wherever you listen to your podcasts at DL Gaming News. And you can also find us on Instagram and Twitter if you want some gaming news in your social media feed every day at DL Gaming News. And uh, you can find us individually if you really, really, truly want to see our faces. I am at DL underscore Mother Goose. And I'm at DL Jameson. And this was an advertisement. Go fuck yourselves. The definition of a cryptid is an animal that has been claimed to exist but never proven to exist. As we binged our favorite Netflix series and slayed our toughest bosses in a video game, we began to wonder about these creatures that appeared and stoked our imagination. What was the inspiration for the Demogorgon or the Dementor? Well, my name is Dave, and with my co-host Austin, we bring you the Cryptic Cat.
Every other Wednesday, we will bring you some information about our favorite modern cryptid. From TV to movies to video games, we explore nerd culture through the lens of extensively suspicious knowledge in cryptozoology. Find us on your favorite podcast service under the name The Cryptid Cast. And follow us on social media at The underscore Cryptid Cast. Come join the growing community of Cryptomania.